You are listening to Bear in Mind, the University of Northern Colorado's official podcast. Join us each episode as we listen to the voices from UNC faculty, staff, and student alumni as they offer insight on issues of local or national importance. This is your host, Dan and Cox, bringing you just a taste of UNC. How much do you know about the civil rights movement? You might remember some key facts, photos, or videos from school, or you might have experienced it firsthand. But does that paint the whole picture of such an influential time in our history? On this episode of Bear in Mind, we talk with Dr. Kiki Gilderhus, Associate Dean of the College of Performing and Visual Arts and faculty member in the School of Art Design at UNC to discuss the impact of art history during a time of drastic socio-cultural change. I'll let Dr. Gilderhus take it from here. 1963 and 1964 were critical years when you see uh, a kind of coming to uh, a, a real tipping point in the fight to end racial segregation and discrimination in the United States. And so during this period of time, you have campaigns of civil resistance, you have many nonviolent protests and civil disobedience, you've got bus boycotts, you've got sit-ins and marches. And a couple of pivotal moments that I would just point to to ground us in this time are the 1963 March on Washington, in which Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Um, That is a really pivotal moment, and it's a pivotal moment in terms of mass media, right? This was an event that drew hundreds of thousands of people, and then it's this iconic moment in our history that you can go onto YouTube and look at the, the footage, and you can hear recordings of this speech. And so we have this really... I think, strong visual sense of what that was. That that kind of sets the precedent, I think, for the late 20th century and moving into the 21st, any kind of protest movement maybe echoes back to that. I believe that the real significance of what we have started here today is that we have laid the groundwork for the building of a functioning, broad coalition of Americans from all walks of life, from all points of view, from all races and creeds and color who can carry on not only the common struggle to achieve an effective and meaningful civil rights legislation, but who can do this practical work, the day-to-day job of fighting discrimination in education, in housing, in employment, in public accommodations. So one of the, the kind of key sets of mass media images that I think you could look to in this period were um, one, a photograph of Central High School students shouting insults at a young woman, Elizabeth Eckford, as she marched to a line of National Guardsmen, right? And you might remember that this is a photo of a young African-American woman who's wearing sunglasses and what looks to be a light-colored dress. And a white student is behind her just screaming insults at her. And I think this is a very galvanizing photo because it shows how intimate and firsthand that kind of violence was. This simply the case of a young woman who wants to become educated, right? Um, A second photograph that I would point to is the photo of Ruby Bridges being escorted to and from school by these, these men in white armbands who are basically there 
to protect this five-year-old girl. And the photo, again, is just really astonishing. She's in this little dress, and she's got her little Mary Janes on and her white socks, and she's just, you know, this image of an innocent little girl being surrounded by these large white men who are basically there to protect her. So the world was a lot different then, right? There's no internet. And I would say that generally speaking, probably most people across the United States had access to these images. These were media images that were everywhere. And they become a point of departure for Jacob Lawrence, who um, in 1963 made a painting called The Ordeal of Alice. Um, and it's a photo in which he kind of takes the image of Ruby Bridges as a, as a young girl. So in the center of the painting, you have this young girl holding her books and she's wearing a white dress, white trites, her little Mary Janes, but she's surrounded by monsters, by these looming, colorful, um, you know, it's like vibrant red and blue and green, this kind of acid green. And they're all surrounding her and just menacing her. And I think the other thing to point out about this painting is, is that she's shot through with arrows. And Jacob Lawrence, in that case, being very deliberate about kind of aligning her with the iconography associated with St. Sebastian. So here she's not a religious martyr, but she's actually a martyr for the cause. It's these very brave young women and men who are on the front lines of desegregation, who are literally putting their bodies into jeopardy, their lives into jeopardy. And so Jacob Lawrence uses a lot of exaggeration and abstraction to really emphasize the monstrousness of this situation and the monstrousness of those, those white supremacists who are threatening these children. So that's kind of kind of one way to think about it. Um, then I think you could look at somebody like Norman Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell, of course, really famous for his covers of the Saturday Evening Post. And he's someone who um, paints in this vividly realist style. He's very much kind of styling himself along the Renaissance masters. Um, he always uses kind of this gentle sense of humor to poke fun at, at you know, these scenes of daily life in America. Um, but in 1964, he did an illustration, the cover illustration for Look magazine, uh, which he called The Problem We All Live With. And to me, this is the moment where Norman Rockwell becomes really kind of very interesting as a painter. Um, this is a depiction, again, kind of t going off of Ruby Bridges. And what you see is a, a young black girl holding her books, dressed in white, and she's walking with those men in the armbands. But behind her, you see on the wall, um, somebody has graffitied the, the N-word. And so it's this really shocking juxtaposition of that word and that young girl. And then the men, you don't even see their heads, you just see their bodies because they're so much bigger than her. Um, but the thing that strikes me as truly kind of riveting about this illustration that he did is that the other thing that's happened is somebody has taken a tomato and thrown it at the wall. So you see the tomato on the ground, there's this big splat that's missed her. She is not sprayed with the tomato juice. But if you think about kind of how we're looking at this or how we're approaching it as a viewer, 
That puts us in the really uncomfortable position of possibly being the person who threw the tomato at her. And to me, that's, that is sort of the moment that I think Norman Rockwell doesn't allow us to be passive viewers. He actually implicates us, right? So if we're not the people throwing the tomato, then who are we? Where do we stand in relation to this? So I've always kind of appreciated Norman Rockwell because I think he gets dismissed a lot, you know, for being really sentimental and kind of precious and lacking irony or depth. And and this is really a moment when um, you see him call it out, not only with the the name, the, the racial slur, um, with the tomato, but also with uh, the, the title, The Problem We All Live With. And, you know, are we going to continue to live with it? I think that's, that's the question. I think we live in a much more complicated time visually right now, um, because with the advent of cable television and with the internet, you know, what you might be watching for news might be really different than what I watch. Um, we also have the ability to not watch news, right? Um, to get our news other ways. And so I tend to be, um, for example, we don't have television, like we don't have cable. So I watch everything streaming and I read my news on the internet or I listen to NPR. And what I find sometimes is when I see pictures of events, it's very shocking to me because most of the time I'm listening to them, right? So I think there's no consensus on what people across the United States see. And I think we also live in a world where you can compartmentalize and kind of choose, choose what you see, for better or for worse. So I think, you know, part of that period of 1963 to 1965, um, really people across the United States were seeing these photos of violence and they were seeing photos of um, the, the protests in which um, white policemen were batoning people and setting their dogs after them. And, you know, I think, I think there was just this national shock and this national jolt. Um, today, I think we don't, you know, it's a pretty high bar to have a collective national jolt, just simply because of the diffusiveness of the media. Um, it also raises a lot of questions about how things are presented in, in museums and how we talk about it and then how those images are disseminated through Instagram and so forth. So the conversation, in my view, is a lot more complicated. You know, not many people saw that Jacob Lawrence painting, right? That was something that happened later. Norman Rockwell had an avenue through Look Magazine where a lot of people saw his work. Um, now we have this, this possibility through social media and the internet to really have a more complicated discussion and then also reach a lot more people. Oh, freedom. I always think about listening to Car Talk on NPR, and they would always make fun of art history majors, right? That was sort of a running joke through the duration of that show. And, you know, the whole point of the joke was that, what do you do with an art history degree? And it seems to me that right now at this moment, this is a really important time for artists and for designers and for art historians. Um, I think artists 
are uh, the ones who have the capacity to really sort of think outside of the box and to bring new ideas, new ways of visualizing and communicating with the world. And with respect to art history in, in particular, we live in a world where we're saturated by images. I mean, think about, I would ask anyone, how many pictures do you think you see in a day scrolling on your phone? A hundred? A thousand? 5,000, you know, I think everybody generates their own photos, they receive their own photos, and we're just inundated. And what art history does is allow a person to really have the tools to analyze those images and think about their meaning. And so to me, art history is becoming a really critical place for that, a critical um, space to think about the implications of this visual world that we live in.